Hey Auntie is based in Melbourne, Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we live and work, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Cullen Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and we extend that respect to all Indigenous Australians and all First Nations mob everywhere. There you are. I've been expecting you. I've just popped the kettle on. Come on in. Hey, Auntie. Hey, Auntie. Hey, Auntie. Hey, Auntie. Hey, Auntie. Hey, Auntie. Is feminism for us? Hi, and welcome to Hey, Auntie. I'm Chantelle Weatherall. Thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be back with you, continuing our mission to listen to Black women, with more conversations reflecting our brilliance and diversity, showing that there's millions of ways to be magical. Feminism, the idea that men and women should be treated equally. It seems so simple and so straightforward to subscribe to. Why would a woman not want to identify as a feminist? But there are layers to this conversation for Black and Indigenous women. And I think it's about time we got really honest and listened to Black women as they talk about their reservations and their experiences of mainstream feminism and maybe shared some of their reservations about whether feminism is really representative of their needs and their interests as black women. Dr. Chelsea Bond is an Aboriginal and South Sea Islander Australian. She's worked as a senior lecturer and an Aboriginal health worker, and she works extensively as a strong voice in the media for the interests of Aboriginal and black women. In this conversation, she gets really real and she's really honest about her own experiences of feminism, mainstream feminism, and really the underpinnings of feminism compared to her lived experience. I'm so grateful that she shared her great knowledge and some really honest stories with us as we explore this important question around how feminism really represents black women and whether we feel like we can find a home and a voice in mainstream feminism. Here's my chat with Dr. Chelsea Bond. Chelsea Bond, Dr. Chelsea Bond. I'm really into using people's uh, full formal titles because I'm always like, hand clicks in the air, achievements, (laughs) big up yourself. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today. Is feminism for us? Which I think is a valid question. Hey, what do you reckon? Yeah, look, um, definitely a valid question. Um, And I think... uh, one that I grapple with and change my opinion on probably on a daily basis. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really interested in having a yarn about that. I Yeah, it's a hard one to answer as a yes or a no. Exactly. And I love that you mentioned that you change your opinion on it all the time. 
because I think that something that terrifies me, especially about Twitter, because, you know, I'm like an old head getting onto Twitter, trying to be down with the kids. And I worry that there's this whole thing that you're supposed to form an opinion and it's there now. Someone screen captured it and you're not allowed to evolve or have nuance and these matters are such big and complex issues and so yeah I think my opinion on it changes on a daily basis there's times when I have a run-in with a particularly um pass ag woman or something and I'm like I'm not down for the sisterhood anymore (laughs) yes 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 um, you know, I, I love the notion of solidarity, um, but as an Indigenous woman, I'm still like, well, where the fuck is it? Uh, so I get conflicted, you know. Uh, maybe feminism being for us is an aspirational goal. I don't know. <laughs> wow. I hear you. I hear you on that, sis. I really do. I... Um... I remember being probably a bit more fervent in my feminism when I was a youngster. I think that I heard about it shortly after I went through my World Wildlife Fund phase. And then I was like, feminism, you know, it was my new thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like marching around and uh, telling my dad off and telling anyone who could hear me. Do you remember when you first uh, encountered the term feminism when you were younger? I don't remember it being a word used in our home. Um, I remember from a very young age being very um, outraged by um, the gendered nature of domestic duties in our home. Um, And so there were um, three girls in our family. I was the youngest and there was my brother. Um, and Dad was a truck driver. Mum worked on the on the telephone switch. Mum was a white woman. Dad's a black man. Um, and um, both worked full time. Dad had a physically demanding job. Um, but as he would come home each day, we would have to take his his boots off. Um, oh yeah, now, bless him. That's going to teach you about a- feminism real fast. <laughs> He had a, he had this like, bless, I love my dad, he passed away, but he, he had a big belly, he had a truck driver belly, so it was hard for him to take his shoes and socks off. And so us, us girls would have to take his shoes and socks off, or, you know, help your father. And um, I was this kid at seven, like, pulling his shoes and socks off going, and it's funny because at the time I thought I was very, you know, strong, but I was like, when I grow up, I'm going to marry a man who takes his own shoes and socks off. I mean... Yes, it was heteronormative. Uh, yes, it was still problematic. But I was, I was like, yes, hang on, what's wrong? There's, some, there's something wrong with this situation. Totally. Um, and did your brother uh, ever have to help? See, my brother had to fix the truck and help Dad with the truck. And us girls did the washing up and the sweeping. and the, So the girls did the inside work and the boy did the outside work. And, look, I think sometimes my brother, he had to be up late night um, while Dad fixed the truck and swore a lot. So he didn't get the better deal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was different. And I'm like, well, hang on. Why? I was interested in why this was the case. Why is it that he does that and we do that and what's, what's that about? Um, and I also knew that Mum worked just as long. Um, as dad and in fact did more around the home than dad so it was kind of like okay I don't think the ledge is even um and so I was a little bit indignant about that um yeah so I I didn't have uh the words to describe that um but I was certainly curious that um being you know us girls what that meant and why that was so limited 
Yeah, I love yeah. that. I love that your first kind of uh, reflections on this came from um, observing your domestic environment and the environment around you. And it wasn't, you know, somebody introduced something to you and you went, oh, yeah, you'd already started thinking That's an interesting about theory. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love this terminology. Please tell me more. <laughs> Um, yeah, I love that. But, but it was much it was much like class as well of, you know, you hit high school and you go, well, why is it that we're poor and other people aren't? And our family works really hard. And so I started to think about class and get a bit angry about that situation and then about race and go, hang on, what's this about? And I tried to understand my frustration with the world. And gender is one such, I guess, um, uh, instrument of my oppression that intrigues me, that I want to understand more about, but it doesn't necessarily have primacy over my life. And I think that's the frustration for black women more generally is this sense of having to choose um, and to be loyal um, uh, as if it's been loyal to us and inclusive of us. Um, So, yeah, I've had this really interesting thing, thing that really, I guess, I could not understand um, those who declare themselves to be feminists the, the the absence of race in the course of those conversations, the absence of class in the course of those conversations, for instance. Um, and so for me, as a black woman, as an Aboriginal woman, um, I have a white mother, a cosmetically apparent black father. Um, so when I had to think about gender, it was, I had to think about race. I couldn't it couldn't suspend that from my th- analysis. And so when Morton Robinson says all contexts are racialised and gendered, I understand what that means. Um, and so I, I can't dissect my lived experience and kind of speak of one over the other. And I think I think feminism has demanded more um, black women be silent about race than black communities have demanded that we be silent about gender. Um, and... The spaces in which I can talk about um, gender, um, you know, it's not that Indigenous communities, it's not problematic at times, and I've certainly had conversations within my own community about um, black men and what they do to black women, um, but I just feel there's more room to, there's more um, room to breathe in those conversations, there's more kind of space to have them, whereas um, within, um, in a broader sense, with the sisterhood, we have to be nice, polite white ladies um, to get a seat at the table. And I can't do that. Um, Yeah. I can completely relate to that. I think even when I was younger and I was exploring these ideas of feminism, you know, I was a, we were the only black family, one of a couple of black families in our village. And so my difference was really apparent to me already. And I had already observed, even as a sort of primary school age kid, that there were ways that we were treated differently because my mother was black. And there were things that um, already felt um, uneven and unjust, apart from the gender roles, apart from the fact that I had to paint my mum's toenails for her and my brother never had to do that. And, you know, those, those things did make you think, life's different for girls and I'm not sure if I subscribe to that especially because I was quite a tomboy as well but I as you say our lived experience is so layered how do you separate separate and give priority to one aspect of the ways that you feel that your identity is dictating the way that you're treated over the other 
But then I think when I got into high school and I started to understand more kind of the political structures of feminism and feminism as a movement and a thing yeah. that other girls would talk about, I definitely felt like it was almost like a conversation that the cool girls had. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Because that racism um, I, conversation, it doesn't fit so neatly between um, who's your favourite in the top ten and, you know, which boys do you like at high school? You know, in between would be, oh, yeah, and this isn't fair because we're women and we're going to, we're gonna, you know, I think one of the things we did as an act of, you know, feminism was we, uh, we decided to join in the speeches at the end of the sixth form formal, which were for men, and that was like our act of feminism, and we could discuss that and then flip back on to talking about boys. But if I was like, let's talk about racism and institutionalise racism and systemic racism, I, you know, I knew there was no space. I knew that already. And we've seen lots of examples of that, I think, when um, black women um, forget their place and go, oh, well, it's safe to talk about oppression, let me talk about this or let me call this out, and the way in which um, uh, black women or women of colour are scolded about that, for, for, for that misstep. Um, and I was, I, was doing, I was doing some research for one of our shows recently and I stumbled across um, um, uh, something on the Today Show um, for an old clip from around the, around the Adam Goods booing saga, and um, Jacinta Campbell, who's a white woman married to an Aboriginal, I think Aboriginal AFL player. I don't watch AFL, um, but she was talking really nicely to them about the booing situation and took a position on it, but was quite bold and courageous. What she said around race, it was really great. Um, and this was on the Today Show some years ago, um, and they all went, oh, wow, Jacinta, and they, like, applauded her and they celebrated her. And I was almost annoyed at watching the response because just this year Brooke Boney, an entertainment reporter who's an Indigenous woman, reluctantly responded to a question from some nice white women on the panel about Invasion Day, um, even though she's the entertainment reporter, and try to be as nice as she possibly could to the Today Show audience, knowing that her mob were also watching her. Um, and she was so um, so politely, you know, saying, it's just not for me, I'm not imposing. And she was she was not applauded. She was like, and, and those sisters didn't stand up for her publicly, not that I could see on the record. Um, you know, so it's this kind of this sense of betrayal because we're watching and we're seeing that it works differently for white women. And they, they seem content with the, the, the arrangement, almost too content with this arrangement. Yes. I think what you have highlighted there is such an integral part of uh, what you learn from your lived experience as a black woman, which is that if I join in certain conversations, there is a price I will pay that you will not have to pay. And so, uh, you know, I've got more skin in the game than you from Jump. Absolutely. And so um, we have so much more at stake sometimes. And, you know, the, the other thing is that the, the failure to recognise that there is so much that black women concede on the daily that we have to be silent about because um, we've got to go to work, 
or we've you know we've got to survive or we've got to keep our professional reputation intact so we're not seen as one of those you know wild black women or one of those troublemaking black women um and so uh and and that's the thing i was just like even today because i'd seen a number of um, indigenous women who had been asked if they'd read something or whether they finished reading something um and it's like you know, we've long done the work that no one else is going to do. So rest assured, we've done the work. Um, you know, it's this kind of this sort of patronising, condescending thing that we just haven't thought things through. The other tactic that's used to silence us is the kind of trickle down kind of feminism. That you know, let's let's deal with women on boards, and you just wait your turn. Um, yeah, nah. <laughs> I think this International Women's Day was really interesting for me because I saw a lot of campaigns about, uh, which were, I felt, sort of subtly addressing the topic that we're discussing today, because they were almost defences of feminism. They were saying, look at all the things that we have now because of feminism. Feminism has done so much for us, you know. And absolutely, I love the fact that a woman is no longer, but I... I also was kind of reflecting when I was watching those things that violence against women is still an epidemic in Australia as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But women on boards, I might be a bit controversial saying this, but to ask for labor, to ask for us to prioritize getting women on boards, in Australia we don't even report on racial diversity in organizations. So for me to be focused to get women on boards, I have to be really honest with myself and say that's helping white women to get on boards because they're the yeah. only ones who are even within striking distance. And it's, and, and it's helping middle-class white women get ahead. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the, the thing where I feel like I, I, I can't bear false witness. I can't testify to those lies. Yes, all those things are great, but I also have to... My body tells the truth about the limitations of feminism. Um, my history tells the truth about the limitations of feminism and its refusal to see the humanity of black women, non-white women, non-middle-class women. Um, so it's that... It's like, yeah, I'm not against feminism. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Can, it, can we get some of it? Um, can it work for us too? Can we get um, some of it? And I guess that's the question. Is not the question is not is feminine f- feminism for us? Is will it see us? Will it hear us? Um, will it include us? Um, and you know the buzzword intersectionality. Everyone's using it, and white women love it. It's kind of like a way for them to feel okay about being a feminist, like they're one of the cool ones. Um, but there's this thing about the way in which black women's bodies are used to accessorize this kind of intersectionalized feminism. That's not anything different. Um, and just as I'm not going to be an accessory to white knowing, I'm not going to be an accessory to white women's virtue or their claims to it. Um, the reality is white women in this country have a long tradition of violence against Aboriginal women and indifference to that violence. Um, they weren't um, innocent bystanders. Um, they were the people that our grandparents and, and for some people who loved that their parents had to report to, um, who were restricted by. Um, so um, white women have got to come clean um, and fess up um, to the violence that they perpetrated against other women. And then we might have some solidarity. That's what solidarity is. That's what solidarity looks like, right? Mm, yeah. 
when we talk about feminism a lot of the time it's almost positioned in a way that makes you feel embarrassed if you don't subscribe it's like like I love uh, Chimamanda Adichie and I love her speech. Yeah. I think people just use the title a lot uh, without actually going yeah. into the detail of what she said when she gave that speech, we should all be feminists. Obviously we should all care about equality, but that is equality. The idea of equality is an ideal, right? And feminism is a movement. Yeah. And movements contain people and people have biases. We have histories they're not innocent they don't they don't you know they don't come with clean hands and so to expect me to wholeheartedly want to support feminism like when that movie came out about the suffragettes I was like nah brah <laughs> I'll skip that thanks I'm not yeah. interested in marching at the back of your parade thank you and and this is the catch though it's like um you know the the Martin Luther King I have a dream quote that white supremacists invoke to insist on that that conflate that with universalism and race blindness um and it's like no that's not what he meant um but it's the way in which um you know the words of black people are used to weaponize the uh, black people against black people to be silent I mean that's a thing um uh and it's like yeah, I have that thing too of like going, well, yeah, um, that was an aspirational goal. And yes, we want those things, but the only way we're going to get there is by listening to the black people then. Like how, how do you think we're going to get to that destination? Um, it's not by continuing to keep us at the back of the bus or, the, you know, um, bowing our heads and being subservient. Like the movement has to move. Um, and there are those that really are happy to um, be that knower um, of oppression and the only authorised person to speak about it and it's as though it's um, there's not a movement shouldn't be full of lots of different voices. That should be the exciting part of a social movement is is the, 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 the spaces it creates. I think it's we have every right to call out conversations that exclude us and it's not that we're not being in solidarity, we're calling them out for not being in solidarity with us. And I think we have to, um, I think... Um, uh, remember that because um, I think that's where the real violence um, happens for us is when we accept the logics that they're using to keep us silent. And that's what resistance is. And that's, and that's why I very choose about where I play, the spaces I play in, um, the people I hang with, the conversations that I have, because I know about the violence of those spaces. And um, sometimes I go into a space where I know I've been positioned in such a way and I'm going to have fun with it. Um, and there are other days where I'll go, not today, Satan. Um, I'm good. Um, I'm going to hang with my kids and have some fun. Um, and so, yeah, I think we have to be strategic um, around that to protect ourselves from the violence of feminist agendas in this country. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. There are days when you just feel like I cannot labour in this for you right now because there's a whole bunch of other burdens that I carry every day and I have no choice but to carry them yeah. and what you're asking me to do is prioritize joining in an additional fight with you and I don't get to put any of my other burdens down or share them with you as my mm -hmm. sister in solidarity all it really is for me is taking on an additional fight 
a separate fight um, for us when my other fights still continue. So I have to work out whether I have energy for it. And to be really honest with you, a lot of the time now, I'm really thinking about my own creativity and the things I want to create and do in the world. And I'm realizing that spreading myself really thin is reducing my impact. Absolutely. So I have to think, okay, if I want to be useful and I want to apply my talents and my energy in the place where I can do the most good, is it useful for me to actually be on the front line of universal feminism? Is that where where the most good needs to be done right now? Or should we all actually be pivoting our attention to the absolutely galling areas where people are not struggling to get on boards, they're struggling to have their humanity and their lives and their right to freedom and their right to clean water, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about, um, you know, uh, US Congresswoman um, Annie Maxine and her Reclaiming My Time declaration. That was more than a gif. Um, it, it should be the mantra for all black women. Um, you know, we are no longer uh, required to be of service to white people. Um, and we can relinquish that role. And people will still call us to be of service to them. They will still be indignant and outraged that we're not there for them. Um, and they will use, you know, our core values against us, like solidarity, as a way to kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, rouse us for not being there for them. Um, but, no, I, I reclaiming my time is um, I have to think about every day people want to take something from me. Um, and so I have to think who gets my time. Um, and I have good, uh, people around me that help, that I, I, get, I get advice on around that as well of going, okay, do I take up this one? Do I, you know, and so having, um, black women need a team because what we, what we know is very few people will defend black women. Like it's up to, it's up to us. That's it. And so I know throughout my life that I haven't been able to count on other people to defend me and the best best person to defend me is myself. I'm, I'm the most solid, you know, in solidarity with myself. Um, and so um, I have people around me who aren't all just black women, but I have people around me that I uh, get counsel from around how do I hold myself, take care of myself in the course of undertaking, um, you know, what, what do I take up? What do I let go? Um, and because there's a lot of work that we want to do that we're never going to get to. And the work ethic that's been drummed into the minds of black women continues to haunt our consciousness every day um, of being 10 times better, of being good enough. Um, you know, white women talk about imposter syndrome. This is not that. Um, this is something that's been, you know, uh, yeah, planted in our heads for generations and the text produced about us, the movies that we've seen about us, we've been told that this is our role. Um, and so we have to fight that thinking every day for ourselves about what does it mean to be a black woman and who am I here for? Um, and it can be hard because if you do get, you know, rewarded for being of service to white people, it's alluring for some black woman. It's alluring for some black men. Um, and so... It's also keeping ourselves in check around that stuff of who's supporting you. Um, I, I think that's what led us to do Wild Black Woman was that 
you know what, we're, we're, we're angry about the world um, and we want to laugh, we want to reclaim our time and, and, and have a moment in the week where it's ours and we're going to produce work for black women um, because nothing good has ever been reserved for us exclusively. Um, so we made a conscious choice that this is who this show is for and we get to laugh at the white men and the white women who are outraged that this show isn't for them. Um <laughs> And we go, oh, that must feel really bad. Oh, yeah, I wonder what's that, what that feels like. Um, uh, we get to have a giggle about that. Um, for me, it's been, yeah, thinking about who gets the best of us. I want to save the best of myself and my family and for other black women. Um, but I know that people benefit from my labour that aren't just black women. And those people know well they're benefiting from my labour, those um, other people, um, but I'm not here for them. I'm not here for their feelings. Um, I'm not here for their anxieties. Um, I'm here to service them. Um, my ancestors did not put me here to be of service to white people. I love that. And I love, I love your clarity in declaring that. I end up sometimes in groups of the partners of people who are friends with my partner. Um, lots of them are wonderful women, but some of them I'm just like, I would definitely not ever meet you otherwise and yes. I and I kind yeah. of because my partner's delightful and he's proud of what I do making the podcast I kind of unfortunately get backed into a corner when I have to explain to white women a lot that oh, I make yes. a, I make a podcast <laughs> for black women and then I also then have to deal with and observe the multiple different ways which they try and inquire or raise to me the fact that they don't think that's valid. Ah, oh, yes. So th this is the thing. So, look, in my refusal to be of service to white women is not because I don't love them. I came out of one. Um, I love my mother. Um, but she doesn't require me to be of service to her to show that I love her. Um, she knows that her experience of the world is incommensurable with mine. She's fully aware of that. She's not trying to claim my identity. Um, she's not trying to dismiss my experiences because she can't. She's seen them. Um, but uh, to say that I'm not going to be of service to you is not to say that I don't love you or care for you or that you're valid or you're important. Um, I just want to say that we matter too, you know, and we've got something to say as well. Um, but that black love is only ever um, visible when it's of service to white people is what's so messed up about this when you think about it. I think the realisation came when I read um, Alice Walker's explanation of womanism when she said that womanism is to feminism as purple is to lilac. Because I realised that my experience of feminism is a subset of my experience of injustice. And so I understand mm -hmm. feminism because I understand injustice in a wider context in my life. Whereas sure. I think when I was thinking about my white female friends who are feminists, they understand injustice only through the lens of their own experience of injustice as women. And when I'm trying to explain injustice to them um, in other contexts, they're having to do a kind of thought exercise and project themselves into something that in no way relates to their direct lived experience. And I feel like that is a gap between us that I that 
is kind of entrenched in some of the feminist movements and the feminist activities that I've seen because I feel like even when I don't do things to directly serve white women, like making this podcast, they inadvertently serve white women because the things that I make are actually about, in a grander sense, reducing injustice because my activities are purple, they're not lilac, whereas the things that exist that I interact with that are feminist activities do not have the byproduct of helping black women, helping disabled women, helping indigenous women, because they are so specifically designed from within the context of white middle-class women. And in relation to getting equality with white middle-class men, that even an imagination of the problems that I experience is not within the contemplation of their design. So I sometimes think of it as almost like a design problem. And I don't, I, I've gotten to a point where I don't take it personally. I just feel like you are not able to design something to help me because you don't have the lived experience of this. So either you need to be willing to be part of a movement that is led by people like me, or you need to understand why I need my own spaces and why I need my own movements. And that's kind of how I reconcile it to myself, but God knows I've never found a way to articulate that to most of the white feminists in my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's really interesting and it's got, you know, it's really got me thinking and I, um, part of me goes, is, is that being generous? Is, is that a generosity being afforded to them in terms of that they don't get it or is it, what is it about them that they don't want to get it? Um, and I think about I am concerned about and committed to and supportive of a whole lot of things that I have not personally experienced because if when you think of, you know, injustice every, anywhere is a threat to justice, ev- you know, everywhere. Um, and and so I, I think there's a willful indifference. Um, I, 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 you know, I think about and I guess because for me um, as an Indigenous person in this country, the refusal to get the Indigenous experience has not been accidental. It's been deliberate um, from the, 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 the very thing that brought them here and enabled them to live here illegally um, was predicated on the fact that they just imagined we weren't here even though we were. Um, and, you know, our protest signs and T-shirts just say, still here. Um, they see us. Um, and we've been really creative and intelligent around explaining our experience to them. Um, and um, we've been very visible. We've, we've done the work, but there's a willful indifference. And, and I think this is the part where I think, think about uh, being, you know, First Nations, First Raced as a woman, or the kind of different kind of the ways in which things work. And so I don't give them that same generosity. White women have a position in this society that's predicated upon insisting on my incapability. And that's why my capabilities as a black woman, as a black scholar, are read as a threat, not as something to be celebrated. The machine machinery works very well to, in, sh- in short, insist to us that we are incapable. Um, and, it's, and it can be found in these movements. Um, feminism is not this bubble that exists independently from colonialism. And we can't talk about feminism if we don't talk about colonialism and white women's role in that. Um, and so um, a feminism that asks us not to speak about that 
just not to speak about race or to speak about um, colonisation is inherently violent and it needs to be called out as such. To survive in this world, we tell lies to ourselves every day when we get up. I lie to myself that when I say if I'm super excellent and work really hard and study really hard and are really smart that I can transcend race or I can do something about it. I'm honest with myself. And so I have to lie in order to be able to get up each day, um, knowing that everything's stacked against me, um, knowing that no matter how awesome I am, even the admin officer can render me powerless. Um, and they do all the time. Because, again, the inherent pecking order kicks in, um, not the sisterhood of women, but the inherent mm-hmm. racial pecking order when dealing so often with white women in frontline uh, administrative positions because being obstructive to me is a way that she can remind herself that she's not at the bottom of the pecking order. She's so better I, than you. Right? So I start, even, though she, even though she's not. So I started the hashtag, hashtag black woman's tax, to explain how I... Okay, I'm going to join in on that now. I've got some stories. Yes, I love it. It was an outlet because... How many times do you try and go through your life as a black woman and you meet these situations where people give you friction? They literally slow your progress simply, and I'm going to say this now, overwhelmingly these are white women who are doing this. Absolutely. And they do it solely to remind themselves that they're not at the bottom of the pecking order. And... The inherent power dynamics of race mean that I cannot respond in that moment and absolutely detrimental to my mental and physical health. So I created the hashtag as an outlet. And the example I put on that day was the fact that I have to deal with so much of passive aggression from white women in the service industry and I have to swallow it and intellectualize it and, you know, make it into something so that I can avoid the bear trap that I can see there rolling out in front of me of go on, react then. Look, um, I, I'm, uh, you know, achieved the, the heights of ASPRO at a Sandstone University through a promotions committee. I didn't get handed to me, did the work. But I found myself dealing with a white woman who um, refused to source boxes for me to move my office. Now, the grounds of which of why I had to move my office from that space in itself were deeply problematic. And But I can't speak about that because I just want to get on with the work and do my job but that my final day would be met with an indignity of, well, I don't know where to get boxes from with a bit of a smirk. Um, you know, from someone whose role it is to source those kinds of things um, or whether, you know, and, and so I often encounter white women and not just in the workplace but in service spaces where they really don't want to service me. Because my presence in that relationship is messing with their heads because they've been led to believe that I'm supposed to be of service to them and they refuse to just do their job. And it's not like they don't get paid to do it. I mean, we get asked to service them voluntarily. If you're going to pay me to do the job, we'll do it for you. Um, But these white women, they're getting paid and still refusing to be of service. Now, there's something really messed up about that. 
so true. It's so true. And you know what I think it is really, it's beyond venting and it's beyond frustration because I actually think it's a really beautiful, like a little, a little example of where the two identities come into conflict, right? So the identity of being a sister as a fellow woman and the identity of being uh, part of a patriarchal and white supremacist structure come into conflict within the white woman. And inadvertently, a large proportion, some may even say a majority of white women in those situations of conflict choose their position within the white supremacist patriarchy over their position within solidarity. Because if I'm really honest, that pays better right now. Yeah. Um, and I think, the, like I said, the absent from this conversation also is our relationship to black men. So the relationship between white men and white women is different to that of black men and black women. And so if I think about, for instance, my own example of my, in my um, family. So my white mother was working poor when she met my father and he had a, a job and a car and a nice car and he would drive her to work um, in the evenings back, this would have been in the 70s, um, and the police would routinely pull him over. And as they were searching through his car and questioning him and stuff, they would turn to my mother and say to her, do your parents know you're with him? He was the threat and the risk from which she needed protection from. Now, if we fast forward some 20 years later, when I'm walking with my cosmetically apparent Aboriginal partner down the street, I end up being incarcerated. And the reason for why they interrogated me, according to the QP9 statement when it goes to court, was they were concerned for my safety because I was with a considerably large Aboriginal male. Wow. So my proximity as a black woman to a black man does not afford me protection. I think that's the really important, I think that's our contribution as black people, black women, and what we bring to the academy in understanding how the world work, works is not just we testify to our lived experience, we have theorised about it. We have made the connection between what's happening to our bodies right here and right now um, to how that is happening for other people. At that time, all I need is a temporary pass so I can get into my office and go and do my job. But yep. I'm literally having to call on my intellect to go, this white woman is not just being obstructive and rude. What she's actually doing is playing out her conditioning as part of patriarchy because she is subjugated by white men on the basis that she will abide by and put up with that subjugation because she will then be given preferential treatment above all other creatures on the planet. So I will oppress you, white woman, and you will put up with that oppression because that buys you a position second in command below me and you may then oppress everyone below you and they will serve you at pain of punishment and violence from me and all the apparatus at my disposal if they don't. So I'm literally thinking this in a micro way when I'm interacting with her. That is the level of consideration and thoughtfulness I have to deal, bring to these interactions. And at the same time, this is also the violence of oppression um, and the violence of racism in the sense that 
much more beyond this notion that we get called names and we just can't cope with it because we're very sensitive. Um, racism is not about name calling. I was raised to cope with that stuff. That stuff I can deal with. Like we're pretty resilient, the kind of stuff we have to deal with. It's the daily encounters in the most mundane moments every day. It's the inescapability of racism um, and that we're required to be superhuman at the same time get dehumanised and then theorise about it all. And it's that, that work every day that gives us high blood pressure and diabetes and heart disease because that's the stuff that's killing black people, like literally. Spend most of my time speaking with black people about how to deal with the violence of whiteness, not appealing for validation from white people because I know how, how exhausting, how impossible that task is because <laughs> they're never going to validate us. Um, my interest in, my, in terms of where I invest my labour is um, the, how do we build the armour for black people? Um, and I think about armour in terms of both shield but also think about um, spear. How do we protect ourselves? But also what do we do about this? How do we reclaim some agency in these encounters? Um, I know that race, we, we, we will never transcend race, that it's that we can never... Um, and, look, I've tried. I've tried to become a, an associate professor at a Sandstone University. I know that you can't transcend race. Um, and I can testify to that even if we're ten times better. I know that... I'm, Exhibit A, we can't, and there's many more of them, many more that come before me. The indignity of an of a unqualified white woman who just says, I don't know where to get boxes and barefaced lies and smirks at you. Um, so for me, I'm like, okay, I'm, 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 what I'm here for now is I'm just here for the wins, for those moments where we reclaim a sense of power, where I can have the dignity of black people restored even for a moment. Um, but we're still expected to come put our bodies and our jobs and our spirits at, on the line to help that white woman who's already 10 feet in front of us get into that gold class line. And I think something that really came to me hearing you talk is the idea that I do think these everyday things are important. And you know what? I think part of it is the lack of trust that I feel towards the broader feminist movement sometimes because I feel like they are able to sit on a fence where when they want to, they can jump off on the side of the fence of being radical and they can pop their booby out and start feeding. Oh, I was just going to say, pop a susu out. Yeah, I was <laughs> Um, but then when they also don't want to, they can hyperfeminize, they can even to some extent infantilize themselves and sneak right back under that wing of white supremacist patriarchy and be very safe there. And they do so often play both sides of that fence. And I don't know what I can expect from you on a day-to-day -day basis, my, my white sister in arms. I don't know if tomorrow you're going to be the same woman who wants solidarity with me as you were today when you wanted me to march for you. I don't know if mm. tomorrow, when it suits you, you are actually going to be turning a blind eye or worse, playing vulnerable victim so that I, or someone I love, is subject to violence. So how can I wholeheartedly commit to your cause on that basis? Yeah, and some of my, um, I mean, some of the protection of my body is also limiting the amount of times I'll allow myself to be disappointed. 
because black people get disappointed on the daily. And so um, I... I know that I get most disappointed in those who I expect more from. And so um, there's a reason why I will um, uh, be cautious around white women because they also have the power to disappoint us the most because they actually should know better. Thanks very much to Dr. Chelsea Bond for this really real and honest conversation. Hey Auntie is produced by Michelle Macklin, Chantelle Dumanuba, and me, Chantelle Weatherall. Music in this episode is by Jason Price and Michelle Macklin. For more on the show, you can visit heyauntiepod.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're just getting started with season two, but you can always go back and listen to the great conversations from season one. More from us in a week.